Hi everyone, I'm Miranda Cash and I will be your host for this week's episode of Around the World in 25 and 20 Minutes. Um, and this week our theme is going to be theater. Now I love theater, whether it's a just a school production of theater or if it's a big opera production, but we are going to be looking at the different types of theater around the world and how it's different and really comparing and contrasting um, what's familiar and what's new to us. Um, we want to look about or look at how theater around the world was affected by history and what really defines it and how theater affects those people who enjoy it. Some examples that we'll be diving into is Kabuki and No Theater of Japan. Um, we'll be looking at Jinju Theater in China and even Puppet Theater in Indonesia. And so we have our typical sections. We'll be having a political section and hint we will have a trivia section talking about the politics. We'll have our music segment and we'll have our economic segment. And from Sophie, we'll even have a call in uh, question where we did a poll on Twitter and Instagram and really answer your questions about the different types of theater around the world. And so let's get into it. Okay. Thanks, Miranda. Today we are going to discuss minorities in China. Most of China is made up of the Han population and throughout history, minority culture has been pushed aside. So the dialect of power relationships between the Han and the non-Han is well reflected in their musical domain. For a long time, the Chinese empire aimed to politically control minorities and did not try to interfere too much with their culture customs. However, the modern Chinese, rep Chinese Republic that was established from 1911 to 1949 was influenced by Western concepts of the nation state and nationalism and used aggressive culture assimilation. They used the Marxist theory to justify the Han control and to help minorities. As a music result, the huge body of revolutionary songs for the masses in 1950, which were based on minority styles as a propaganda propaganda tool legitimized the people of Republic China among the minority population and fostered their loyalty to the regime. Minorities trained to sing with vocal timbre that Chinese call my, my Shang, which is a beautiful song based off the North Atlantic term bel canto. North Atlantic singing style cultivated professional vocal style, and in 1982, new leadership adapted a more sensitive attitude towards minorities. This reflected in the 1980s new pop songs where minority singers sang, their, sang it on their own. Now that we've kind of talked about how minority culture and music was affected by the Chinese Republic, we're going to talk about what it traditionally really sounded like. So... The Mongolian singing style is really unique. It is produced by a whistle-like melody and changing of the oral cavity to reinforce um, certain overtones. And this rich and frequent use of ornamentation or falsetto. This is actually known as throat singing in the North Atlantic. So this progresses in wide skips and unfolds in a continuously linear and pulseless fashion. And pitches and phrases, text syllables are also elongated, giving this giving it a rhapsodic quality. So now we're going to talk about how this is kind of having a positive or negative effect on minority cultures. So under the Communist Party of China, minority cultures have thrived economically. However, much of minority life has been forced to conform to values of the government. So, for example, they have to learn Mandarin, they have to abide by party law, they have to kind of change the way they've always done things. Although these, um, although the party law was really helping them as 
as they provided them education, health care, transportation, and raised the general quality of life. They also helped publicize their music culture. So I guess, you know, that their music culture was publicized is almost like a trade-off for the minorities. Like, they have broader musical audiences, but they also have to change and abide by party law. The culture has much more publicity as presented in the spectacle, spectacle as it's on television or sort of minority parks as they wouldn't really be able to do this without the help of the government. But like like Isabella just said, it is like a trade-off in the way that they do have to abide by these laws, but they are helping them musically. The point about um, having the spectacle and all of this publicity is great. But they, this can also be kind of viewed as um, exploitation of minorities because, you know, China profits off of these minorities without really experiencing the consequences of being a minority in China. You know, they don't really have ever had any of those negative effects of what it means to not be part of like the majority of China. And we actually see this in the United States. Um, it's often referred to as cultural appropriation. We see this with, you know, pop stars such as Ariana Grande or Kim Kardashian as they profit off of black culture, but they don't really experience the negative effects of being black in America. So people are learning about these cultures because of exposure, but it, just like you said, it, it a negative is also a negative aspect because they're not actually doing what they please to do because of because of um, the party law. Yeah, so in conclusion, we've decided that although the quality of life has improved, they still have to change everything the way they've done it and kind of be forced into something that they didn't specifically ask for or want. Thank you. All right, now it's time to hear some questions that we have from our Instagram and Twitter polls from Sophie. Will you take it away? Hi, this is Sophie McBride, and today I'll just be answering some of your questions from Twitter. If you think of any more while I'm talking, um, be sure to send them in, and I'll try to get to as many as possible. So the first one is, quote, what about other types of theater in Asia? Why are those important too? End quote. So... Um, while China has been my main focus mostly, um, I have been doing a lot of other research lately on um, different Asian countries, um, specifically Japan. Uh, kabuki theater there is very important to their culture. It's a very elaborate, lavish production that I've put on. Um, has a lot of exaggerated romance, um, stereotypes of the bourgeoisie, and all that sort of thing. It's very popular, especially in cities, and especially among ordinary people. I think kabuki is really important because it kind of offers them a distraction from life because of its outlandishness, and I think that it provides a really good sense of community among the ordinary people, as opposed to, you know, say the nobles who enjoy more the no kind of thing, which is a lot more reserved and restrained. So the next question is, quote, when and why did Peking Opera suddenly become popular with the upper class?" End quote. So initially, Peking Opera was only for common people. Um, I think this was mainly due to the so perceived lack of sophistication. Um, it was also really easy to understand, and, and it was energetic and interesting. Um, but it transitioned to become popular with everyone, um, mainly because of the women of the Manchu imperial court. Um, their interest in it gave prestige and, in turn, 
Peking opera became a lot more sophisticated and then spread throughout other parts of China, gaining even more and more popularity. And the last one I've got today is, quote, Do you personally think that the spectacle created on television is detrimental to the musical future of minorities? End quote. So, this is a really loaded question. Um, I will say as a disclaimer, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer this since I'm not really a Chinese minority whose culture is endangered. Um, you know, so I don't know if I have the authority to speak on that. So I can just say my own opinion with the information that I have currently from my perspective as an American. Um, so personally, I think that the spectacle on television is detrimental. Um, I think that it creates an inferior representation of the music and it takes away the richness of the experience because the music isn't just the music. It's not just what you see, but I think being there is really important too. And I think that's what makes this music special is being there and understanding it and experiencing it in the moment. Of course, it really, it really does depend on your priorities um, because would you rather have the music fade away but be fading away in its original lavish um, form or would you preserve like a changed form, a form that could potentially be exploited by the government, it could be capitalized upon. So it really depends on, on your own priorities, yeah. All right, so that's really all the time we have for today. Um, I'm sorry if you guys can keep sending in questions and we could answer them later if possible. But thank you so much for listening today and I'll see you next time. It's Miranda, your host again, and I'm here to introduce our music segment. I'm here with Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Will you introduce yourself really quick? Hi, I am Rachel Fishmar. I am your ethnomusicologist, and I'm here to talk about Jingju Theater of China, and I'm really excited. That's perfect. Um, I love this type of theater. It's so different from what we're used to, and I'm excited to be able to compare and contrast what we are familiar with, with Western theater, with this new type of theater. Yeah. So can you explain a little bit about the different ensembles that's a part of Jingju Theater? Yeah, so when I was first researching Jingju Theater, um, it really caught my eye that the two ensembles each have their own distinct type of instrumentation. So the first one I'd like to talk about is Wenchang, which is another way of saying civic instrumentation. And this focuses a lot on the melody. And the melody is what allows the drama to really come through to the audience because the audience is there to um, get that spectacle of the Chinese opera to really understand the story and this music um, allows them to not only see that visually with the actors and the sets but they can they can hear it through the music Wow um, yeah that's really great so what kind of uh, instruments are a part of that I'm sure it's very different because I have some like orchestra experience so I'm very familiar with like the basic like cello violin and some band instruments Right, yeah. Um, well, that's really interesting that you're part of orchestra. Um, that's like really unique and 
that's good that you have that background um yeah so like in the wenchang ensemble there um is the jinghu which is a fiddle so we don't normally see that in um western pit orchestras normally it's a violin um so i think that's really interesting how there's that contrast and um yeah, yeah and there's also like like flutes and oboes like the dc and the swona so there are some similarities between the two um, types of ensembles, but yeah, um, very elaborate, and it really helps um, convey that spectacle that they're trying to show. So um, I actually have been doing theater for a while, and um, I was a dancer in the show The Little Mermaid, and um, there's a song called The Storm, and so in this, um, the prince, a main character, is drowning in um, a storm in the ocean. And it's a very climactic moment in the show. And it's like the audience like doesn't know what's going to happen. And so the dramatic music that the pit orchestra is playing, in addition to the visuals that we see on stage, um, really allow the audience to understand the stakes of the situation. So like the music is played at a forte dynamic. It's very layered. There's a lot of dancing. Um, so yeah, I think it's really interesting how both of these types of theater, whether it's in China or whether it's in the West, they both utilize music to um, really enhance the spectacle. That's very true. And that's interesting that you say that they have kind of like similar instruments to like the flute and oboe. So I'm sure that creates quite a different sound than what we're used to, even though it's almost like a similar setup. That's really cool. Now, I did hear in doing some research that you do need a little bit of like background knowledge to be able to like understand this type of theater. And that's a little different to me, at least like going to Western theater. And like, usually if you understand the language, you know exactly what's going on. Right. Would you agree with that kind of statement? Yeah. I, cause with Jingju theater, the, um, the background stories that they talk about, um, have very layered, um, stories that are so um, deeply rooted in Chinese culture. So if, if you want to watch that, it's important to have that background. Um, and yes, like the visuals and the music can help, but having that background really makes the spectacle all that more, all the more amazing. Wow, that's really awesome. And um, what about the percussion? How are the drums unique? theater yeah I'm glad you brought that up so um, the second ensemble that um, we see in Jingju theater is the Wu Chang which is another way of saying military instrumentation so with this the percussion is not only used to keep the rhythm which is normally what percussion is used for to keep the rhythm the tempo to keep the pit on track but um, it's also used to emphasize like dramatic actions and moods that the characters are going through that are happening on stage so the audience can feel um the drama that's occurring um like the melody yes that allow that can create a dark mood or a happy mood but the percussion is what really sets um the dramatic tone so we see instruments like the drums, the gongs, cymbals, bells, things we we do see in western um, theater and pit orchestras. Um, but what's really interesting is how the percussion helps mark social status changes. 
So that is very unique to Jingju because wow. in China, the hierarchy is so, um, there, there's a lot of emphasis put on that um, compared to in the West. Like normally it's not really um, as important in most of the stories that we see in musicals or operas. Um, and a theater connection I have in regards to percussion is um, I was in Chicago last year and um, there's a song called Cell Block Tango and the per and it's a satirical show so each um, character has a monologue about how they murdered their husband and why they're in oh, jail. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's very um, comedic and it's, it's not meant to be taken like really seriously and um the percussion is used to emphasize the punchline of each monologue which is really interesting because um it really helps the audience understand which part of the monologue to focus on and and yeah like it, it the percussion did keep the rhythm and as the song progressed the percussion increased in um intensity which really made the song build on itself it really amped up the stakes um, and it went from something comedic to something very dramatic at the end, which almost created kind of like a scary mood, which is pretty interesting because, yeah, in Western theater, um, like some musicals can be um, very happy and then some can be extremely dramatic. So, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of similarities there and yet a lot of differences. That's really great. Um, well, I think that's all the time we have left, but Rachel, I just wanted to thank you for having this discussion with me and really talking about the differences and what we're familiar with and what's new to us and how there is really so much more behind Jingju than what really meets the eye. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, and on to the next section. Hey everyone, it's Miranda, your host here again. So I want to introduce that we have another trivia session going on, and this is going to open up a bit of our like political segment where I ask some trivia questions. Um, so for the question one, Beijing became a cultural, economic, and political center early on, and this was conducive to the creation of Jingju, a form of Chinese opera. Do you guys think this is true or this is false? I'm also joined by everyone else on the podcast, so please weigh in. False. Why? Um, I'm not sure. Anyone else have any ideas? Um, hi, I'm Rachel. I'm the ethnomusicologist. And I hi. think it's actually true because Beijing was, is the northern capital of China. So it's, um, it's thriving in terms of its tourism. And um, it's like a very huge political center. So um, for that reason, many audiences come to see Jingju performed. Um, and it has like a major spectacle with its intricate costumes and makeup, which is really interesting to see. And um, they also use heightened speech or the two ensembles of Wenchang and Wuchang. Um, and the music helps um, bring the um, art across to the audience. And um, it's actually kind of similar to Western musicals because audiences are able to experience um, the shows through music and visuals. So I think it's really interesting how Beijing has allowed Jingju to become popular. Wow, great answer. Rachel, you're actually correct. That's just right. And from like an economic standpoint, like since it was such a thriving center, they had all the like the funds and 
resources to create such intricate costumes and performances. Now, bonus question for the actors. Do you guys think they wear masks or painted faces? Painted faces. Okay, anyone else? Masks. Masks. Well, trick question. So they do wear paint, they do paint their faces, but they paint them in a way to look like masks to really create that kind of aesthetic. And they don't really move their faces as much to preserve the mask so that people, or the mask like so that people can see it. All right, question two. In Japan, politics of the time had no effect on the development of no theater. True or false? True. Okay, anyone else? Well, it's actually false. <laughs> um, while arts and theater like thrived during the isolationist period in Japan, no theater came about during a period of anarchy under the Muromachi time. How did this affect No, Well, they have like a more serious and restrained type of theater. And um, during that time, there was the ruling samurai. And so they were very like just restrained and kind of military-like. And so there was a very spare aesthetic. And it's quite different from um, Kabuki theater of that time. All right, question three. Weyong Kuli was a type of puppet theater in Indonesia, and it's the only one of its kind unique to Indonesia. True or false? True. I think it's true. It, it sounds like it's a very unique type of theater that's popular there. Is it actually I'm gonna false? Say false? I may have gotten you guys. It is false. So puppet theater is not unique to Indonesia. Japan also has a puppet theater called Bomraku, and Weyong Kuli is like a whole long night spectacle. Do you guys think it serves any other purpose than just entertainment? Does it also tell stories and explain moral and ethical instruction? Exactly right. Um, so I was when I was doing research about this, I saw that the government actually can use it to explain like some social programs, and it's quite a um a useful tool for them and it really reaches out and unites all the people of indonesia since it's such a diverse place but wow all right thank you guys for joining me on this trivia session this is all the questions i have on to the next section Welcome back, everybody. It's your host again, Miranda, and this really concludes our episode of Around the World in 25 Minutes. Um, I hope you were able to learn something new, and I hope you were especially able to expand your worldview and really look at the different types of spectacle that's created in the world. Maybe one day you'll have the opportunity to see one of these types of theaters that we talked about. But for now, just please subscribe and keep asking questions on our Twitter and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you all, and we'd love to hear about what you'd like to learn about next. All right, everyone. Until next time. See you.